Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Well, I mean, our goal is to win the division, so, you know, there's a lot of focus on that, and I think we've had kind of an uneven season. That part of it is performance, but part of it is just, you know, the number of injuries that we've had. Um, and that adversity that we've faced. So, um, but I don't look at it as, I'm not sure, you know, if we look at ourselves in the whole picture of the National League, I mean, the goal is to win your division, get to the postseason, and given especially the top of our rotation, I think we've got, in, the, in, the, in our bullpen, um, I think we've got a, as good a chance as anyone once we get there. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Monday, July the 12th, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Well... Welcome to the end of the first half edition of the Talking Mets podcast. New guest is going to be joining us in just a little bit. Uh, you guys may know him. Uh, he's actually got a loose connection to our buddy Frank the Tank. And don't roll your eyes. I know Frank the Tank was a controversial figure here a couple of weeks ago. But Pat Ragazzo, the Mets beat reporter with Sports Illustrated. And uh, he's going to be joining us in just a little bit. Pat uh, does some nice work. You can check him out on Twitter at Ragazzo Report on Twitter, uh, and he's at every ball game. and And Pat will get his feelings on the Mets and what he thinks. And pretty busy Sunday, end of the first half, the draft, lots of stuff going on. But 
look, I'll get into I mean, I know the draft is going on, and as I do this show, uh, in just a couple hours, you'll have the Home Run Derby. I'll be honest, to start out, I am not a big All-Star Game guy. Did I get into the Home Run Derby with uh, Pete Alonso a couple of years ago? Yeah, I'll admit I did. Um, I'm not sure if I'll be watching it, you know, live. I'm probably going to take a step back from the game for a few days because that's what I like to do during the All-Star break. Just like you guys, just like the players, you got to recharge. You got to take a step back and get ready for the stretch drive. It's what we talked about. It's getting to know the team through the first 60 days of the season, then trying to figure out what they need. And over the next couple of weeks, Zach Scott, Sandy Alderson, and company are going to have to figure out what kind of deals they can make to augment this roster. And then it's about going and getting it done. I mean, the next couple of weeks are going to be critical as the Mets go on the road. Then they come home and they have the Braves. So this charge right after the All-Star break starting Friday in Pittsburgh into the trade deadline is your final push before it's, hey, you got to go out and get it done. But really the sense of urgency starts now uh, on Friday as you need to t- try to amp it up and, and bring it to the next level and, and hopefully the Mets could do that. I think that's where I'll start as I assess the first half. Because I'm not going to get to, like I said, the All-Star game, all that. You guys want to watch it. I'll have half an eye on it. But love Pete to death, all that stuff. But you know what? Time to take a break from the game and, and read more about that and take a step back. But when you look at the first half and you look at it as a whole, I, I think you got to walk away and say to yourself, you know what? Mets are in a pretty good position I think if I had told you, and, and let's go and really read off what the situation is here. Uh, 17 players at one point on the disabled list, 7-9 and nine opening day starters outside of McCann and, and Lindor on the DL. Out of the six starting pitchers that we talked about in spring training, three went down with an injury. Peterson, Yamamoto, uh, Lucchese. You're down to three starters. You had to bring McGill in. So now you got, you know, you're in your 7-8-9 off guys like that. You've been d- diving into those guys probably uh, a little bit more than you liked. The worst offense at times in the league. At one point, they were averaging under three runs a game, and that's with a good chunk of those opening day uh, members in the lineup before the replacements. Then you had the replacements for a good four, five, six weeks. You have your franchise player, as we predicted, Francisco Lindor adjusting to New York, and uh, that probably lasted a little bit more. and was a little bit more of a valley than we even expected. You know, you talk about guys like Piazza and Beltron and the kind of first years they had. I think Lindor's start was rougher than both of those guys. And, uh, you know, we know how those guys had what they had to go to and what they had to endure. So when you look at all of that, the fact that as of today, the Mets are in first place, four games up in the loss column, three and a half ahead of the Phillies. Now, I understand the division came back, you know, played down. Nobody in this division has put any pressure on them. Akun is out now, so, you know, you see that. Uh, when you look at the guys, you know, the teams that are left, you know, can you really see the Braves now investing in this team with Acuna out? Maybe. I'm not sure what they think, but there's a, a, a team that lost money. Uh, the Phillies were a team, John Middleton, that wasn't, you know, necessarily a shoe in to sign JT Realmuto. Will they invest in this team? They're hanging around. They're the team I would watch. Uh, their bullpen is kerosene on the fire, but they got a good manager. I know there's some questions about Girardi. I wouldn't count him out. The one team I think that you still have to worry a little bit about, and I know that they've been streaky, are the Nats because of those three big pitchers. If they get Strasburg back healthy, they got Scherzer, they got Corbin, they can match up right there with the Mets, maybe better if they're on. So you have to watch for them. But nobody in this division really at this point, if the Mets do their thing and they continue to inch towards 10 games over 
and really play their game, then I can't see them losing the division. Now, does that mean that they're going to be in the mix and I'm going to feel good about them? I said they're a tournament team. I've been saying that for weeks. They're a team that nobody's going to want to face because of DeGrom in a short series. Five games, seven game, one game play, and whatever it is. And there's still a chance, we'll see how San Diego and San Francisco play, that maybe the West comes back, and if, God forbid, something wacky happens, you know, the Mets are in a position where, you know, the wild card is an option. But right now, it looks like they're going to have to win the division. They're in a position where they have the ability over the last few months, the two months, eight, nine weeks they've been in first place, to figure their stuff out. So it's, it, I think when you look at everything, Mets are pretty fortunate that they're in the position they're in because nobody played at a high level in the division. They were able to survive the replace the Mets and the injuries. And, and let's also remember what we talked about in the offseason, that this was an historically significant undertaking that this front office took on. New owner November 1st, bam, right into the offseason. One GM, GM is in, GM is gone, had to rehire. They're making hires during the season. They're pivoting. Tons of on-the-fly decision-making. And really the first-half MVP, if you really want to talk about one, might be this Mets front office, which there's a lot of guys, and I know that there's a report of some of these analytics guys or some of these back-end guys are getting some promotions there, but uh, between some of the diamonds in the rough they found, going out and getting a Kevin Pillar and a Jonathan VR, using Steve's Co- Steve Cohen's money to augment the roster, not just go for the big fish. You know, Maybe they lucked into Taiwan Walker, but give them credit for making that deal after the Trevor Bauer sweepstakes uh, went sour. And how lucky is that? I mean, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. But really, the Mets front office has been the real MVP. Putting in analytics and using it to help improve the defense. With Now they're one of the top shifting teams in the league. And they're not only shifting based on where the player hits the ball. There was a you know, conversation on the broadcast this week and how they're implementing the pitcher's repertoire into that. And as much as you see a hit here or there, and I complained about the shift a couple of months back, I think it was that series in St. Louis where I felt the Mets were never in the right spot, and you saw it burn them a little bit with the Defoe hit a couple of hits this this past uh, weekend, you know, balls that probably should have been, you know, double plays not being caught. I feel, and I'm sure the Mets feel this, that the positioning on defense that they put out there has helped them more than hurt them. And, the, and whether you believe in the defensive run saved or the little different metrics that are out there, the eyes tell the truth. The Mets seem to be in position more often than not with a lot of balls that when they come off the bat look like base, it's up the middle. There's somebody right there to play it and get it out. And that's helped make a very good pitching staff maybe even better than they should be. So I think the Mets front office has been the star of the first half. Look, the top three starters have been really good. The bullpen has been a savior. You are starting to see my concerns And I think yesterday's game against the Pirates, an awful loss. I think the worst loss of the season, really, bar none, the worst loss of the season. Because you're ready to end the first half on a high note. All you had to do was put a couple more runs on the board. They were done. And, uh, you know, sure enough, my fear is that they put the five spot up really early. and, And there was a lot of baseball left and the Mets blew it. But really what you saw is that when you get away from the Diaz, Lugo, Lute, May, portion of the bullpen and may has kind of fallen back and forth and you rely more on the familia castro drew smith etc etc the eikoffs of the world the tropianos whoever you want to put out there you start to see the concerns where a team that's relying on yesterday basically 27 outs out of their bullpen if you want to count eikoff as a starter okay but you know really it was a bullpen game uh 
this is where the um, you know problems really uh, come into play. You're, I said, your starters are only really going six or seven innings. You're not really pushing them. They haven't. Maybe they'll start to do that. They're pushing Degrom a little bit more. You're asking for nine outs from the bullpen every game, and then you factor in how the offense has not executed. Now it's starting to heat up a little bit. Since Nimmo came back July 3rd, I saw a stat. They're averaging a little over five runs a game. That's more like the offense that we expected. Maybe if that's the norm going forward, then you know things will be a little bit different. But the problem is, is that all the close games, which are definitely character-building situations, are burning out this bullpen. And then when you ask a Castro to go that extra three outs, uh, when you ask Familia to go that extra bat or two like they've done a couple of times this year, they can't do it. They can't do it. You know, a lot of times with Familia and Castro, you get what you get out of that one inning, and that's it. You got to, you know, fold it. You know, fold it while you're ahead. Um, you know, we'll see if a Drew Smith or a Yancy Diaz or if Sean Reed Foley comes back, or maybe there's somebody else. We'll see. But right now, that's the main concern, is that as they continue to play these close games, uh, the more reliance you're going to have to be on the whole bullpen and how more that second tier of the Mets bullpen, which I've been talking about for a few weeks, comes more into play. How can this be a special season? Well, it's really, ironically enough, we're going to make the big assumption they're going to be a lot healthier in the second half than they were in the first half. And I think that's fair enough. I mean, how much worse can the health get? Um, It's really going to depend on the offense, because I think it all starts with the Mets averaging those five plus, I mean, maybe not even five a game, maybe four and a half. League average, maybe that's enough. But if they could average five or more a game, they're going to be in position where then they can maybe give that second tier of the bullpen some cushion on most days when they could get five or six innings from the starter. And, you know, they can, uh, you know, potentially then really hone in on when they need the A team to get those final six to nine outs in closer games against better teams and what have you. Can they execute with runners on third in less than two outs? They haven't done a lot of that this year. Can they be better situationally? What's their approach? So a lot of times you've heard Luis Rojas talk about their approach. You can watch it while you guys, you know, look, we're all amateur hitting coaches. We're all amateur analysts. I don't care who you are, whether you're in the media or you're with us here. There's plenty of times. I thought it was an at-bat yesterday. I think it was a three-ball count. Don Smith hit ball to a warning track. He swung at ball for him saying, you know, kind of situation where the more you put pressure on the pitcher, the more walks you take, the more runners you get on base, the harder it's going to be for these guys uh, to get through these innings. And I think that's what they have to do. What they did in the first inning was perfect. They took their walks. They had a couple big home runs. That's what's got to happen for this team to score because they have not shown the ability to string through a lot of hits. Now, they did that a little bit against the Yankees. But other than that, they really haven't. They did it on Friday in the 13-run outburst. But even that, there was a ton of walks there. When they're walking, when they're patient, when their approach is good, puts pressure on the opposition, that's when they're at their best. And they haven't done that a lot. And it's critical. It's critical for this team to start to execute with runners on third, opportunities with bases loaded. There's a couple of bases loaded, nobody out situations against Milwaukee this week, couldn't bring it home. Uh, It's a killer. It's an absolute killer when you don't score and you let those teams off the hook. And, uh, you know, they were fortunate. They had a 4-3 and homestand. They're probably game off of where I want them to be. I thought 48-39 and would have been a nice way to go into the uh, end of the first half. Didn't happen. Now you got to wipe that bad loss away, and you go on the road, and away you go. So what is next on the, other than other than that? Well, we're going to be sitting back and seeing what can they do to augment this team? What can they do? 
Is there uh, uh, another bullpen arm? Look at Rodriguez, the Pirates. Guy just throws fastballs and throws strikes. He gets out of the inning. That's it. It's not that, you know, the walks, the drama, the three-two counts, the foul. Like, just throw strikes. Get get me somebody that can throw strikes, please. I don't ask for a lot. I don't, you know, you don't have to have 110-mile-an-hour stuff. Um, So I think they need to go out. I definitely think they could. They need to see what kind of bullpen arm they can acquire. Those are usually the easiest ones to acquire. There's got to be somebody looking to dump them without asking for a lot there. I mean, look, the Mets traded Familia, Addison Reed, when they were, were sellers. You know, can they find a guy like that to help their bullpen in the last eight weeks? What are they going to do with the open starting pitching slot? Good news is that Carrasco is going to start his rehab assignment. Um, you know, will he be doing his rehab assignment by doing two, three, four inning starts, modified pitching at the big league level? It's very possible. Looks like that's a big possibility. Then maybe the need to trade, uh, you know, becomes a little bit less because do you trust Tyler McGill? I think the thing right now you have to ask yourself with Tyler McGill, who I still think, you know, could be a length guy out of the bullpen because I, and I still don't, I don't know. I have to see more as he goes around. I know he's pitched against guys a couple of times, but uh, again, the more that you have these games where you have to go to your A team and win and burn out your bullpen, I think the worst you're going to be as you get later in the year. You need a healthy, rested, well-run bullpen. It's been a well-run bullpen all year. It's been one of the better managed bullpens in a long, long, long time. Long time. Maybe 15 years. So, you know, helping that bullpen uh, be its best by having it rested and not overused may require, can you go out and get a Kyle Gibson? What's that going to cost? Look, you just drafted a stud pitcher. So maybe you feel more comfortable trading a Matt Allen. I know he's hurt. JT Ginn. Maybe you feel uh, better trading from your stable to, to, to put your chips really to the center of the table. And do you go in and bring in a Chris Bryant to play third base? Or do you go at a higher end of the market? I mean, it's a possibility. They're really not giving you an indication. You hear a lot of names, but the Mets haven't given you an indication other than what you hear is that they don't want to trade top prospects. But as you get closer to the 31st, and as you could smell an opportunity to win, you know, this draft that's ongoing as we speak may allow you with these players you're bringing in to trade similar type of assets that you currently have in the system and uh, and go for it. So we'll see. So that's really where I'm at. It's And I think you heard Zach Scott coming in. A little uneven. I think you could make the argument that they missed the golden opportunity to blow this division out of the water. By rights, they should be very comfortably ahead. And we should be already, you know, a la 2006, be, be doing the... Let's get ready. Let's 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 round out the roster. Let's get ready for the playoffs. But you know, I always say it's like a basketball game. Look at it like a basketball game. Winning a division sometimes over the course of seasons is like a basketball game. Instead of the ebbs and flows happening over two and a half hours, it happens over six months. And you let a team hang around, a team that clearly isn't playing well, clearly wants to be put away. But the more you let them hang around, whether it's because you're compromised yourself, teams in foul trouble, you have injuries, whatever the more likely that a run happens. And when that run happens, you better hope they don't get hot because last two minutes of the ball game, down by two, anybody can hit a three. You could be the worst team in the league. You could be the best team in the league. When those last two minutes come in a basketball game, it's all even. They're all pro players. And the same thing I'm going to say for the Nats, for the Braves, for the Phillies. At some point as we get into August, they're going to look up at the deadline and say, eh, we're three games out, we're four games out. Why not us? You know, we we have a homestand coming up. We go seven and three on the homestand. The Mets go four and six. We're tied. It, it, you know, very easily. So, 
just because we're not, you know, feel, you know, there's not a buzz around these teams, and maybe it's been lackluster because they haven't really put together a run. Don't discount them. And the time is to get serious, and the Mets have to step up their game. They have to be much better, and I think it starts with the offense, and it starts really with the possibility that, hey, the guys that you see out there are the guys that are just going to have to be better. The fact that majority of these guys on offense are below league average going into the All-Star break is mind-boggling, despite some of this uh, trends upward since July 3rd. But, you know, that's where it goes. So that's where we're at, first half. That's my feelings on the first half. We're going to take a quick break. When I return, Luis Rojas, what are my thoughts on him? Because I think he's been a big part of the first half. And we'll talk about that more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon. And enjoy the rest of the show. Louis great. I mean, he's such a good, genuine person. Um, he's very open-minded. We have really good conversations. I've really enjoyed getting to know him. It's been one of the best parts of the job is getting to spend so much time with Louis and to get to know him and how much he cares for players. Uh, he's an even-keel guy, um, which is great when you play in a market like this where there's always going to just be organically be pressure. Um and there's going to be ups and downs because it's baseball. So he handles that really well. Um, and like I said, open-minded, wanting to learn new things, wanting to always get better. And I really appreciate, even though he's a you know fairly comes off as fairly soft-spoken, even killed, he has no problem having difficult conversations. Um, and it's very effective because the players know that he really genuinely cares about them. And I think that goes a long way towards them listening uh, more. So it's been great. Kids today, like, you grew up with sports. You have your heroes, right? And there's different generations, and all the athletes are different. You know, when you go back and talk to Messier, or look, you know, and, t- and he tells stories about the NHL, right, or Barry Bonds and in their generation, you know, it was toughness and this and that. Kids today, a 20-year-old, 22-year-old kid is completely different than a 22-year-old was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and relating to them is different. Like somebody was telling me yesterday, actually, it was like there's kids, they have so many inputs and so many distractions, and basketball is just one of them. You know, when we were growing up, if you were into sports, you know, it's like the movie Diner, right, where he quizzes his girlfriend, right? That was what it was about. Right. And that's just not the case anymore. And it used to be, and I used to feel strongly this way, that having an in-games X and O expert gave you the ultimate advantage. But now I think having a relationship with the person, right, somebody who can connect to the players because that's what gets them to go a little bit harder, right? That's what, you know, when, when the chips are down and every team has a bad run, one way or the other, you want somebody that just is a relationship person. It's not that Rick isn't good at that. He was, but it's just harder to relate to a 22 all right we're back you know you guys know who've been listening to this show a long time i'm not the most touchy feely guy but i believe in coaching and leadership and the impact of a manager and the ability of groups to uh, sometimes maximize their talent and do more than the collective uh, total of the group by just being the best version of themselves they could be. Look, I grew up 
I've told you a billion times. I'll tell you a billion and one. I'm a disciple of Pat Riley's Knicks. I mean, that to me is the epitome of coaching and leadership and the lessons that that team and that coach imparted on me at a young age. And I, and you could go back and still read about those those things in books like The Winner Within or you know listen to a guy like Riley speak. It's going to be with me the rest of my life. But uh, things have changed a lot. And the clips that you heard coming in, you know, first Zach Scott talking about Luis Rojas. And then you heard the clip from Mark Cuban. Now, Mark Cuban, why am I playing Mark Cuban, you ask? Well, that was from Victory the Podcast, great podcast. has nothing to do with sports, but Mark Cuban was on there. And he talked about making the change that the Dallas Mavericks made by going from Rick Carlisle to Jason Kidd. And taking the basketball part of it aside, you heard Cuban talk about caring and communication with the players. And I think you, ironically, when I heard that clip, and then I heard the Zach Scott clip, I thought of Luis Rojas because I've said this a lot and I go back to how I've talked about where I was when the Mets were going through the managerial search and it was about a few things. First, you want a manager that can manage up because now you have to manage up to your bosses. You have to manage that clubhouse game, respect in that clubhouse, hold them accountable. And, and, and from my era growing up, that was also a bit of a taskmaster. Like a guy like Pat Riley, Bill Parcells, great coaches from when I was a kid. They were taskmasters. Is my way or the highway. You can't really do that anymore. You have to do that without doing it overtly. Uh, you have to manage the media. That's a big part of the job. And then in baseball, it's about managing the bullpen. And when you start to look at Luis Rojas, and you hear what Zach Scott said, that not only can he gain the respect of the players and care about them, but he's able to have the tough conversations and hold them accountable. That's the money ball quote to me. Because... There's two things that come out of player managers. First of all, there's fake player managers that, you know, talk about the players, but don't give you know what about them. And I think to a certain degree, Mickey Calloway fell into that because right away you heard a lot about his inability to spend time and connect and communicate with his players. I think Mickey was more about Mickey. and was more about overly focusing on the media. And I think when Brody Van Wagenen came in after Sandy Alderson left, uh, he had to overly focus on his bosses because there was a disconnect there. And then you have player uh, managers that are so player centric that they get taken advantage of because they're not strong enough because they build a relationship with the players. They're not strong enough to have those tough conversations and hold them accountable when they do something wrong or bench them Um, or, you know, communicate the message that is maybe not popular. Look, Francisco Lindor said it off the bat. I don't like shifting. He said it early in spring training. He's done it. Um, There was some issues the famous rat raccoon fight with McNeil. And it looks like they figured it out. And I'm sure there was a lot of selling of these concepts to a guy that let's face it. Lindor doesn't need the shift to be a good defensive player. He could probably cover a ton of ground. McNeil might not be able to VR, whoever the third baseman might not be able to, it might not be best for the team, but he did it. And you probably got to give Luis Ross some credit being able to sell that message, but also hold him accountable and holding a guy making 34, $35 million a year accountable. So, when you look at Luis Rojas, when you hear players manager and caring for the players, you think of weakness. You think of how, uh, you know, when I was listen- when I was reading the book, actually doing the audio book of Andy Martino's sign-stealing book about the Astros, one of the quotes from A.J. Hinch really struck me is that leadership sometimes is how much you're going to tolerate. And, you know, a guy like Hinch tolerated too much and actually, I thought, came across weak when it was all said and done. And... I don't think Luis Rojas is a weak guy. I think he's a guy that generally cares about his players. 
He wants to show his players he's in their corner, but he's not in their corner to the point where he will compromise the team, compromise his standing, or be malleable with his belief system and the front office and the team's belief system to accommodate a player. Now, look, you got to partner with your stars. You know, guys like Lindor, uh, you know, maybe even a Pete Alonso who's not at that level. But sometimes you have to realize that, you know, their process, their way of going about things, again, goes back to tolerating a certain amount and how much do you tolerate comes into play. But you can't argue with the results so far. The players, there's, there's even when there was little burst-ups, the hitting coach scenario, firing Chili Davis, which didn't seem to be popular with the players, the whole rat raccoon drama. Ross didn't BS the media. So he he actually, in two ways to me, he showed the players, hey, I don't really agree with what you did. Is that the way I would handle it? Clean it up now because I'm not tolerating it. And he told the media, hey, I'm not going to lie to you. It's BS. But why are we, why are we talking about this? We just won a ball game. He kind of showed you in that whole, in that instance, the two things that I hold true, managing your players, hold them accountable, and managing the media. He did it right there. He did it right there. Uh, and I think he's pretty much able to, uh, there's a certain amount of treating the media like you're selling them. And, you know, communicating with them honestly and openly. Sometimes you have to do a little bit of both. It's like a re- any other relationship. You know, any kind of relationship you have in sales, in business, the media have to make them feel good. And sometimes you have to whack them down when they get out of control. And you've seen some of the players do that. But Louis kind of direct with that. He doesn't get, you know, overly nasty. He doesn't get tripped up when he's thinking on his feet. And for the most part, he gives them what they need. But um, I think it's authentic. I don't think it's like Terry Collins was fake tough. And the media loved Terry Collins because he fed them. And you got to do that to a certain degree. You really don't. You really can't feed the media anymore, and it's a little easier for Louie on that sense because of the Zoom culture that's been in since he took over COVID. But, um, you know, still, when you're on that Zoom and you have questions, uh, let's face it, you can still look dumb, and you can still, you know, add fuel to the fire and things like that. So, you know, I can't say enough about Louis Ross. I think that he's a guy that maybe the Mets looked into the right choice, especially after reading a little bit about Beltron in that book. You know, Beltron, where, you know, I, you know, Beltron was a guy that always used to go into his shell when he was a player, especially when he was challenged. And that certainly was a concern that I had is that here's this guy that was like this as a player. And here we are about 10 years later, he's positioned as that, which is this leader. And I'm sure he had been great with the players and, and, and whatnot. But, you know, managing the media and the perception of what this team is and the distractions, you didn't want to have another Mickey Calloway situation. And I was always pretty pro Callaway because I thought he got a, a raw deal. He never really was given a, a fair shake. But looking back, he created not just the stuff off the field, but uh, there was a lot of things that were missing on the field that you're hearing about now. And he was not a good tactician. And he was not good at thinking on his feet. And that's the thing about Rojas. I mean, you really can't screw up a ton X's and O's wise. But managing this bullpen, giving guys the day off, bringing guys in in leverage situations, Finding the I really can't sit back. Now, maybe I could quibble here and there, and I don't know who's hurting, who's not, what the load management requirements are with these players, so I have to take that into consideration. Maybe I could have quibbled yesterday instead of pushing Castro the second inning, bringing Drew Smith. I know he pushed Familia a couple of times, uh, multiple innings when you knew he didn't have it, got away with it against Arizona earlier this year, didn't get away with it against the Padres. You know, certainly yesterday was on that bubble. You know, bad pitch floated over the plate. Maybe it would be a little unfair, but... 
to me, I can't quibble with his, his decisions. The lineup is analytics-driven. I think that's more about you know communicating that to the players and making sure they're on board with it and that doesn't create any discontent. And the biggest thing is, and this is also going to tie into the front office, how can you get guys like Pilar, Villar, J.D. Davis is coming back, Guillerme, you know, guys that probably, especially Pilar and, and, and Villar, who need at-bats and who've played a lot in their career, not easy to sit for three, four days, not get an at-bat or get one A-B, then come in and contribute. So there's a lot there. So you got to give them a lot of credit. Pressure cooker, new owner, expectations to win, unforgiving media. Maybe it's helped the Yankees have struggled. Maybe Zoom has helped a little bit. But this was not the first choice. It might not even been the second choice or the third choice. And certainly for me, I wanted a veteran manager. I wanted a Buck Showalter. I wanted a Girardi. I'm still, you know, I'm learning this whole caring for the players and communicating in a different way. It's a different world. It's a different world. So, you know, I'm as guilty as the next person as needing to adapt and adjust. But certainly when you talk about these great communicators or these, these managers that can balance all the things we talked about and still be solid in a tactical way, the few tactical ways that you still have to uh, lean on in this game, he seems to be checking all the boxes. Maybe the, I've been saying for years that the Mets need a manager, that they can grow and be their guy for the next five, six, seven, eight, nine years, ten years. A guy like Davey Johnson who was here a long time. Now, Terry Collins was here a long time, but he kind of, he he was here way past his expiration date, and he was fortunate to get a pennant, and he was really a caretaker. The team didn't grow. He was a caretaker. He was uh, a benign figure after a very difficult period of managers for the Mets, from Bobby V all the way to Jerry Manuel. And now it's about bringing, you know, I always wanted Wally back, but I thought Wally would do a ton of great things. And somebody said to me, and I don't know if they want to know their name, you know, I just I had a conversation with someone in the business off the air. He was a big Wally Backman supporter back then. And he said, you know, Louis Ross is a lot like Wally Backman, except he doesn't have the baggage that Wally has off the field. And he didn't play for the 86 Mets. And I'm like, you know, that's fair. That's fair. It's a grinder. You know, it's a guy that's really gone up through the system, knows the system and knows what it takes to compete and win and make your way through the minor leagues and grind it out each and every day. And embraces analytics, and, and and you heard what Zach Scott said: new ideas, and that's important. So if you could manage up, manage down, manage in front with the media, and manage a bullpen and do the basic tactical things that sometimes could undo you, man, you got yourself a star manager at that point. And I don't need him to throw dirt on the umpire. I don't need him to scream and yell. I don't care what his emotions are in that dugout because you don't know, and I don't know what he says behind closed doors. Nor should we. Okay, because now the players don't want their dirty laundry ad. They don't want to be aired out in the dugout. Sometimes you and I want that. Sometimes you and I are angry, but that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. So uh, got to give Louis Rojas good grades there, and I have to agree with Zach Scott. I think it was very interesting to hear what Mark Cuban has to say is another sport, uh, a, a progressive owner in another sport. What are they looking for in their coach? And there it goes. A lot of that is what you heard Mark Cuban say is what Louis Ross brings to the table. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, Pat Ragazzo, Sports Illustrated. We'll talk about the Mets. We'll talk about Louis Rojas. Hey, the Mets made a pretty big splash in the draft. I haven't gotten into that, but we'll get Pat's take on that. That and more right after this. There have been a lot of amazing scenarios during Mets history. Did you know that Mr. Met was fired? Yes, fired for a brief time. Devin Gordon author of the book So Many Ways to Lose, The Amazing True Story of the New York Mets, talked about Mr. Mets' short-lived replacement 
on the Talking Mets podcast. They actually fired Mr. Met. Mr. Met. Loving father and husband. <laughs> and replaced him with a mule. A live, actual mule that they named Metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, because they wanted a symbol of unglamorous grit and determination to be the symbol of the mess. And they they ended up, it turned out, and this only occurred to them later, the demise of Metal the Mule um, was brought on, um, because it turns out that uh, mules need to be fed, and they require care and feeding, and you right. have to store them in humane facilities, and all of these things cost money. Um, whereas you can pay Mr. Met nine to five. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. We're back and joining me first time on the show, Pat Ragazzo at Ragazzo Report on Twitter. He's the Mets beat reporter with Sports Illustrated Fan Nation. Inside the Mets, right, Pat? So uh, you also right. know him uh, if you listen, and I know that this will be, you know, rile people up. He's the other half of the Frank the Tank pod. He does a much better job than I do getting Frank to talk. So, you know, uh, Pat, welcome to the program. Uh, chance to exhale, take a breath here. And I'll be honest, I'm not a big all-star guy anymore. Uh, I'll, I'll probably peek in the home run derby. I was more into it on Pete Alonso's first year. A little bit of Netflix, catching up with the wife and the family. You know, my wife's like four days, no baseball. Let's 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 take a break here. And I like I said, the, the opening to the fans, even for you covering the team and the fans, you got to take that breath and get ready for what will be an interesting second half. Yeah, for sure. So first off, Mike, thanks so much for having me on. Very excited to be here. And um, I'm kind of with you with with the All Star Week. Uh, kind of just trying to take the time to you know catch my breath and kind of get all my ducks in the row, get ready for a second half. But course we have Alonzo Pete Alonzo in the home run derby tonight so I will be you know checking in on that sporadically probably will be watching him for the most part uh we might not get as an exciting um performance as we did in his rookie year two years ago where he took home the title but should be you know pretty fun to watch uh and then of course Jacob deGrom's not participating in the all-star game tomorrow night uh maybe Taiwan Walker gets in which could be pretty interesting but um yeah I'm just excited to be here and kind of talk about the first half and, and uh, you know, talk about what's, what's, uh, what's coming next. And uh, obviously you mentioned Frank the Tank too. Um, of course, everyone knows who he is. He's uh, very, very passionate about the Mets and lives and dies basically with every pitch, which is what leads to his negativity as everybody knows. Oh, absolutely. I think he's taken Jim Brewer's like video. Ra- I actually looked for his rate uh, is, and I didn't look at the post game of the pie. I was so annoyed by the pirate game. I was like, I don't need Frank's negativity, but uh, interesting end to the, the first half. And here's what I would say, you know, and I said in the opening, if you look at everything, the 17 guys on the DL, seven to nine of the opening day starters, uh, losing three starting pitchers, you're going into seven, eight, nine, the Eichhoffs of the world, McGill, guy that you didn't even have on the radar, worst offense in all of baseball. They went number 30 at some point. I don't know where they are now. And then you have that franchise player adjusting to New York. And look, there was Piazza, there was Beltran. This was as much of a struggle for him as it was for those guys. Not as maybe micro-focus for a variety of reasons, but uh, certainly there. When you look at all that, first place by four games in the loss column, you can say, hey, missed opportunity. But I think if I put all that in front of you back at day one, opening day, and said, Pat, this is what's in front of the Mets, and would you sign for this? The old Mike and the Mad Dog, would you sign for this? 
I think I'd sign for it. I know that sounds crazy because there's so much missed opportunity, but I'd sign for it knowing all those things. A lot of people are, you know, upset with what happened yesterday. I, I think the finale was the worst loss of the season. One of the biggest differences with the Mets this year is those meltdown losses that we, you know, are, have become accustomed to seeing in seasons past had really not happened in the first half. The Mets have been pulling out games that they wouldn't have won. And that's, I think, a huge reason of why this team is so different. But I'm in total agreement that the fact that everyone was just kind of hoping for 500 once the entire, you know, half the roster was injured, more than half the roster, I would say. There was a couple-week stretch where DeGrom and Taiwan Walker were on the IL, and it was Stroman and Peterson and a struggling Lucchese in the rotation. And, you know, half the lineup was out too. So the fact that the Mets have held on to first place for nine straight weeks, they're seven games over 500. Yes, they should be a game better. They should have taken three out of four from the Pirates yesterday. They're over, you know, they were really out of, their bullpen was taxed and, you know, they, they're basically been going with a opener every five days. And they had that brutal, you know, 31 or uh, 33 33 and 31, 31 days. They went 17 and 16. Um, you know, they weren't as hot, but they played better, you know, as of late, I'd say that there's a lot of positives that came out of this. Um, there's just, there's a couple things that need to happen in the second half and, you know, conveniently we have the trade deadline coming up. So I think the Mets definitely need to get another starter in here. It sounds like they're already planning that, um, you know, whether it's going to be a top of the rotation arm, it doesn't sound like it based off what Zach Scott said to us a couple weeks ago at City Field, but Carlos Carrasco seems to be, you know, on his way back. He's starting a rehab assignment this week, which we just found out today. And also, you know, that's not going to stop them. Like in recent years past, as we mentioned, it's not going to stop what they do at the deadline as well. So I think they're going to be better stocked in the rotation, at least. So the pitching staff, which is already third best staff ERA in the league, you know, finishing out the first half, it's probably going to improve which is a positive sign. And then, of course, the offense needs to pick things up in the second half as well. Pat Ragazzo, Sports Illustrated, joining me, new to the show. Glad to have him on. Uh, hate to oh, – I think front offices get a little overestimated and a little lionized in today's game. I mean, it's front office. But I have to say, I don't think fans understand, and maybe even some of the writers forget historically significant what's been going on. New owner November 1st. Couldn't do a darn thing before November 1st. Uh, Sandy comes in, uh, you know, he didn't want the job full time in terms of doing the baseball part. He wanted to be more of an overseer of the whole organization. GM comes in, GM leaves, Zach Scott comes in. They have to pivot multiple times. They're building the front office while they're building their roster. And yeah, they got a little lucky for every Bauer situation for Taiwan Walker. You know, it could have been James Paxton instead uh, they got Kevin Pillar and Jonathan VR using Steve Cohen's money at the bottom of the market. But between taking analytics and implementing it, whether it be with the shift or the lineup or the bullpen, um, you have to give them a ton of credit, whether it's luck or product of design. I think they're the uh, real story of the first half, because a lot of times front offices, especially the analytics world, I think get overrated. I think this front office has had a big impact and you're down there. You hear about it all the time. Am I overstating it? Because, it, it, you know, sometimes I get the roll of the eye, but I think they deserve a ton of credit. Maybe in some cases getting the most out of a group of players that, let's face it, could very easily be 500 or, 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 or below at this point. 
Yeah, of course. Um, there also was some front office promotions today. Um, Ian Levin and Brian Alderson, who's the son of team president Sandy Alderson, they both actually got promoted. They were in the pro scouting director roles of amateur and uh, Alderson was, was the pro scouting director. Um, they got promoted to assistant GMs today, actually, um, which is what we were, we were hearing from multiple reports. Uh, those two guys in the pro scouting department, a big part of what they did, they had their hands on, you know, finding those other guys, the Pilars, bringing in the Pilars, the VRs, um, you know, all these guys who, you know, the Parazas, they had a big, big role in bringing those guys in. And yeah, you can't, I mean, you can't even understate what the front office has been able to do with all these depth pieces. And then, you know, bringing in a Billy McKinney who, you know, he's cooled off now and maybe come back down to earth a little bit. He did have a big pinch hit RBI single and the night. He might be gone. Double header. He, he might, might be, be gone. He might he be could, gone in a couple of days. He could be gone in a couple of days. That's right. Cause they're running out of room on the roster with JD Davis's return looming finally. But I mean, in the moment they lost Conforto for over a month and they brought in McKinney and, and that guy stepped in and, and he played very, very well. And it's just, a number of things really besides like you could say like Albert Amora was probably one of the lone signings that didn't work out this off season. And, and it's not really something that hurt them, but really everybody else has come in and, and contributed. Jose Peraza has been one of their most clutch hitters. He's bailed them out of a lot of games. Um, Kevin Pilar has basically filled in and been a starter, uh, you know, with them missing Nimmo for two months. And, and other than, you know, getting hit in the face with a pitch and missing two weeks. He's, he's been in there basically the whole time and he's produced for the most part. And yeah, I mean, you mentioned it earlier too. Lindor was struggling at first. He's, he's picked it up as of late, but he still hasn't gotten like red hot and like been that dominant top of the lineup hitter that could carry your, you know, carry your offense. Like we saw from Joanna Cespedes when the Mets got him in 2015, but uh, the, he's been a lot better. He's, he really has been, you know, he's been solid. He needs to do more given his contract, of course, and given the impact that they expect him to have on the team, but it's just guys kind of now finding their footing. James McCann, I believe has led all major league catchers in RBI since the beginning of June. Uh, he's picked it up after a slow start. Uh, he's still kind of inconsistent here and there, but, but he's been pretty good. He was their second, uh, you know, biggest signing of the off season to the lineup. Uh, McNeil seems like he's starting to come around and, also a big key for this offense in the second half is going to be what Michael Conforto does too, because, you know, the injury derailing Conforto, that three run homer he had on Sunday was, uh, was very promising to see, but now we got to see it kind of carry over because, you know, he had the rough start to the season and then he, you know, he was picking it up and he was, he was starting to hit a lot better and then he got hurt and missed six weeks. And then it was kind of just his season was halted before it really got started. So the Mets have like five, I believe it's five all-stars in the, in the past that they have in their lineup out of eight and of their starters. And, um, you know, the, those guys kind of come together. This is why they expected the offense to be a top unit and not be, you know, ranked in the bottom half in the, not even the bottom half, but bottom of the league 24. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, guys need to kind of start fulfilling, you know, the roles that they were supposed to, uh, you know, carry this year. And then at the same time, I do think that they're going to bring in another bat too. And we keep, I know we keep hearing Donaldson. We keep hearing, you know, maybe pairing him with Barrios. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's going to be maybe like, and I referenced 2015 earlier, maybe like a guy like a, a not obviously Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe are out of the league now, but a, a hitter maybe like that, like a role player, 
I know they have VR, they have a couple of guys, but there's something I think that needs to be inserted into this lineup. Uh, there's little to minimum room right now, but they definitely need to add another piece, I think, to kind of propel this team um, to where they need to go. Makes you wonder when you talk about the offense. Now, since the Nimmo came back, there was a stat yesterday on the broadcast. They've averaged a little over five runs a game. That's where you expected them to be. You know, five runs a game, top five offense in all of baseball. You know, you look at, and I'm just throwing a name out there, uh, Adam Frazier, guy who's a contact guy. You know, you saw him all weekend. You know, might be a nice thing. You know, actually, the Pirates had a couple of guys. Rodriguez out of the bullpen. Guy just throws fastballs and strikes. They may need another bullpen arm. And, and I think I'll start where, on the offensive side, the reality is that if you don't go and get, like you said, Donaldson O'Brien at the top of the market, I don't know how much of an impact anybody they can have you know, will be. And in a lot of ways, you have to stop and sit, stay back and say, this offense has a lot of, um, you know, history. With, if you look at the back of the old, old baseball card or you look at baseball reference, you almost have to sit back and let them execute. They don't execute with runners on third and less than two outs. They're about 10% below the league average. Uh, they don't always have the best approach. Louis Ross has said that. Hugh Quattlebaum has said that. Um, you even saw it yesterday. I think there was an at-bat, Dom Smith. He had a three-ball count. He swung at a pitch over his head, hit the ball to the warning track, but with a run on first, you know, that walk, you know, taking that extra walk like they did in that first inning, I think puts more pressure on the opposition, will make them even better. And when they've done that, they've really, you know, broke out against the Yankees and against the Pirates on Friday. So in a lot of ways, I'm even saying to myself, it's about these guys performing. You can't replace eight hitters. There's no trade. And Chris Bryan in of himself, other than maybe hedging your bets on Conforto as a free agent, now you have two choices at the top of the market to see who you sign. Um, it may be that they have to just survive and, and go with these guys. And it'd be interesting because Lindor, as you mentioned, you know, he's been a little underwhelming. But if you look at his offense the last 44, 45 games, he's pretty much who he is. My biggest fear is, you know, it's kind of a two-part conversation. One, you may have to live with the offense and hope that they break out and they do better at executing in the approach. Two, Lindor may never live up to expectations because I think everybody wants Mike Trout because of the contract. And I think they're not seeing this was not who you were getting. Cleveland reporters told you that. The statistics told you that. And I think at some point the hype is so high. My fear is that he'll never be looked at as a success. So it's an interesting, when you look at the offense, those two things, that's a big play here in the second half. Yeah, it definitely is. And a lot of what we heard about Lindor and the warning signs with him was that he was kind of in a dip for the last year and a half that he, I think he was batting around 238 since his uh, end, the end of his tenure in Cleveland and they were trying to get rid of him pretty aggressively. But I do think he has made an impact. Um, There's just, he's under such a microscope being here and with everybody, like if he doesn't, if he has runners in scoring position and he doesn't come through every time, he's getting booed because he didn't come through that one time. And, and statistically that's just not possible for him to come through a thousand percent of the time, obviously, but I think he's done a good job. Um, He had a big two run homer yesterday. He was on base four times at three hits. Um, I I just think the overall numbers, I think people will start coming around to him more. And he even said it himself. He had that big grand slam on Friday night to cap off the 10 run inning in the, in the route of the pirates in game one. And he was like, I was just rounding the bases to hear if I was still getting booed because they constantly right. are still booing me, even though like much know, I, bigger impact yeah. than we thought. I don't think that they realize I, I, I look, everybody's gone through it. Never has there been a guy. And part of me was like, Hey, do we really have to sign him in spring training? Can't you see what you got? And to a certain degree, imagine if they did that, they might actually get some value, but you know, the market is the market. It's an emotional decision. 
And uh, I think that this is a big play because this is a guy that as you go down the stretch, especially when September comes, those numbers are going to be brought up, you know, how clutch he is and whatnot. And it may play, you know, since he's been better, the Mets have been better. Since Nemo's been back, the Mets have been better. If they average five runs a game, you know, looking at the deadline ahead, getting a Kyle Gibson type of starter, you know, that'll give you innings, you know, depending on the cost there. And uh, I bring up Rodriguez from the Pirates just because I think there's a guy who's a closer who's probably not a closer. He's a closer on a bad team. You bring a guy on like that, it could come in, throw strikes, give you a clean inning. They need more of that because the Castro, the, the second tier of this bullpen, when you get from Familia, Castro, Drew Smith, et cetera, et cetera, is a lot more dicey than the, the prime A guys. And they played so many close games. In some ways, they're fortunate that the B bullpen guys haven't hurt them. You saw yesterday what could be the future. Could be the future is what you saw yesterday. They can't get the outs they need. Now, they were asking a lot out of those guys, and they asked a lot out of Diaz. But the fact that Diaz had to get you those outs tells you how thin that second tier of the bullpen is. Um, and it's scary. And that's maybe where you talk about deadline. Maybe that's the direction to go because you may not be able to get it all. Yeah, I think especially with Carrasco coming back, and I know Scott and, you know, Scott kind of said, like, we can't rely on that. Like, we just have to look like, you know, look at Carrasco and and obviously Syndergaard as bonuses at this point. But at the same time, yeah, I think bullpen is, you know, a major, major area that they need to look at and maybe consider, you know, acquiring a nice, you know, arm who they could pitch late in games and and rely on, you know, to lock down the games because, like I mentioned previously, they have won these games that they wouldn't have won in years past, and that's because the bullpen would be blowing it later. It would be Edwin Diaz who was struggling. But Diaz has been pretty much lights out besides, you know, with the exception of yesterday in the ninth inning. And, you know, the bullpen is surprised too. Bullpen was something I myself and a lot of other people I know thought was going to be a weakness. Seth Lugo had to get the, you know, the elbow surgery, and and he was out until June 1st or Memorial Day, whenever it was. But the fact that he was going to have to, you know, he missed two months of the season to start the year. You were like, all right, well, like, here we go again. Like bullpen's going to be a weakness on paper. It was a weakness going into the season and they surprised right. Familia turned back the clock. Miguel Castro was dominant until the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, Edwin Diaz obviously had an all-star caliber first half. So there was just a bunch of things that, you know, you weren't counting on that wound up working out. And that's the reason why the bullpen has been so good. But now, I, I think I agree with you there that they do need to kind of do something to solidify it. It's good that Lugo's back. Lugo's been, you know, pretty good. Usually he's, he's been like spotless, I think in years past in the bullpen, yeah. he hasn't necessarily. A little been... dip, little dip, but he's coming back from surgery. So maybe get him some time there. Yeah, exactly. Like he hasn't, there have been a few outings where like he has, you know, he's bent, but not broken. Um, or he, you know, he did give up a homer the other night. His hard, his hard hit rate is up. If you look at baseball savant, I think his hard rate rate's a little bit up. There's little tiny things. And again, I, we don't have the data that these guys, little tiny things that indicate he's not quite himself, but not quite himself is still a pretty darn good reliever over there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like he's, he normally, he was lights out, like one of the best relievers in the game. And then now he's a very, very good and above average, but like I'm sure you remember the uh, the last no the second to last game of the Cubs series where the Cubs were at City Fields um, in yep. mid June and you know if it wasn't for that play at the plate Lugo would have blown he would have blown the save yeah mm-hmm. and it was really tough getting the he granted he got pushed for two innings but he was uh, and he was running on fumes and they kind of just asked a lot from there but yeah there that's just kind of an example of like 
in years past, he would be, you know, locked down for two innings. Like in 2019, he was their closer every other day because he'd just give you like, basically he'd go three up, three down in the eighth and ninth inning and no one could hit him. But yeah, I mean, he's obviously a huge key piece too. And getting Miguel Castro back on track, which is, you know, hopefully something they can do. Yeah, it's, it it is a tough one because you don't really know. He came in and was a guy who always got in trouble with his control, but when he had his command, you know, he obviously has great stuff. But I've asked Rojas a couple times about it in the past week and a half or so about, you know, what are you seeing from Castro? What's going on with him? Are you concerned? And really it's more so just comes down to the command, which everybody can see. And the fact that his changeup isn't there. And that's a big reason why Castro was so good in the first half until the last few weeks is because he had that changeup working for him and it's just not there right now. Louis Rojas, a couple of things here as we uh, get to the back half and wrap up. Louis Rojas, uh, not the first choice. You know, when they were going through the managerial search, I was all about a Buck Showalter, a Joel Girardi, and then Beltran came in. I'm like, all right, cool. You know, kind of a different guy that I never would have expected from his playing days. And then this whole chaotic situation with the sign stealing, they kind of bumble into Rojas. He wasn't a big focus last year in the shortened season. And, and I think you have to give him a lot of credit. And I know it's hard covering him largely on zoom, but you know, you talk about, you know, Zach Scott talked about it in the scrum the other day. Uh, he communicates with his players yet. He holds them accountable. I think he does a really good job with you guys in the media. Cause that could be a hornet's nest. The rat raccoon night. I remember watching that. I'm like, Oh, here we go. Here we go. And he handled it. He's like, look, not what I would have done. He basically said, not necessarily what I think happened, but what do you want me to tell you guys? It's, it's, it's nonsense, but it's their nonsense. And it's basically how they're handling it. And he's managed his bosses. He's open-minded, like Scott said. And it seems like he's had to have a lot of tough conversations with implementing this shift and analytics and guys bouncing around the lineup, even dropping Lindor a little bit, never having to really drop him, but drop him a little bit. Um, when you factor that all in and even his bullpen management, other than I could quibble with the, maybe a few things here or there, maybe not bringing in Drew Smith in the second inning yesterday, maybe pushing Familia a little bit too much into two innings or to work other than some minor things. This is the first time in a, maybe two decades, maybe since Bobby V was the manager that I can't sit here and say, wow, what a horribly managed bullpen. When you factor all that, uh, maybe the Mets bumbled their way into a really good manager. And a guy that could grow with this team that grew up through the organization, almost like they're Ron Gardenheim, which is a beautiful thing if, you, if that's what it turns out to be. There's a lot to unpack about Louis Rojas. Um, I think he's learning a lot, which is obviously a great sign with any manager, any coach is somebody who learns from their mistakes is someone who's going to be a good manager is someone who's going to improve and there's room to grow. And I think he's really grown into it this year. He's been saying it too. He's like, I've learned a lot this year. You know, I talk to a lot of people for advice, but also I've learned from my mistakes and that's pretty evident. He doesn't always have the best day. He's made mistakes. Every manager makes mistakes. Every time they lose, it seems like everybody blame the fans blame, love to blame him just because they love to, you know, they love to blame the coach or the manager, but honestly, he deserves a lot of credit for holding this team together and helping steer the ship with all the injuries they had. They could have fallen apart so many times. They've had some tough stretches and he's held the guys together. He's, he's what they call a player's manager. And, you know, they love him. A lot of guys grew up with him in the organization, but he just, he really gets along with the players. He really gets along with us, with the media. He, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I know I'm, I'm new. This is my rookie year, but he takes the time to talk to all of us individually. Now that we're allowed on the field, you know, he makes it a habit of talking to us. He knows everyone by first name, calls you by your first name. He's very personable. He's easy to to talk to. Um, And he's great in the media. You heard, 
you know, he was asked recently, how relieved are you that you didn't sign Trevor Bauer? And he answered it, you know, perfectly. He was like, uh, you know what? He's like, I'm just glad we have Taiwan Walker. And there's been a lot of instances like that where not only is he great in the media, which is a necessity in this market, but, you know, he's, he's learning in the dugout and, and he's, you know, he's leading a first place team, uh, you know, that's dealt with a ton of adversity this year. And he really, he, in, if I were to give him a grade right now, which he wouldn't give himself a grade yesterday when asked about it, obviously, but right. uh, he deserves an A, I would say, for the first half by far. Wow. And he's holding, I mean, you make a key point. My impression is, yes, he's a player's manager. Yes, he communicates. Yes, he grew up. But he's not, they're not taking advantage of him. They, I wouldn't cross him. There's a part of Louis Rojas that a sternness that you see. And I think you guys have seen it a little bit over Zoom more so when you know he's annoyed. And I don't think the players are running the – the inmates aren't running the asylum, for lack of a better word. And and that's key because sometimes there's that player manager. And I was recently, recently reading Andy Martino's book about the sign stealing, and one of the key quotes that I took away was from A.J. Hinch where leadership is sometimes how much you tolerate, and he tolerated too much. Yeah. And I never thought of it that way because now today you can't be Bill Parcells. You can't be Pat Riley. Riley would even tell you that. You know, He said that. You have to be a, a hybrid. And even Mark Cuban was recently talking about that with them hiring Jason Kidd. You need to communicate and care. You got to care about these guys, but you can't do it to the point where you become their therapist and not their leader. And I think Louis had that kind of balance from what it sounds like what you're talking about. Yeah, he has. And he also is super honest too about things. Like he will be the first one to tell you that he doesn't like how Lindor enjoys to, you know, utilize the sack bunt. Lindor has like five sack bunts this season and Louie has told us, because he gets asked about it every time, but, you know, it helped manufacture a run in the Brewer series, uh, you know, when the team was kind of struggling to score and, uh, you know, it helped them out in that, in that game, I believe it led to a win. It helped lead to a win. But um, I think, I think actually that was in the game where Brandon Woodruff was, you know, kind of dominating and Lindor laid down a sack bunt and they wound up scoring, you know, in tying the game. And then later they got to Woodruff and won the game. But uh, yeah, he said, he was like, I've, I, I've had those conversations with Lindor. Like, I want you swinging the bat there. Like you're our best hitter. Right. We want you swinging. We don't want you bunting, but Lindor is a very team first guy, which is another good reason. Like you hear about his leadership. You hear about, you know, the type of player he is. Lindor is about the team. He's not like, Oh, I don't, you know, I, I don't lay down sack bunts uh, because I'm the superstar. Like, no, he wants to help the team in any way possible. And that's why he, lays down the sack bunt sometimes, you know, when needed, but, but yeah, Louie's honest. It's not like Louie in years past, like you'd hear Mickey Calloway kind of, you know, put lipstick on a pig basically in every situation of, Oh, Diaz blew what is fifth save in six attempts. Oh, he looks really good out there. Like, right. no, like Louie will, you know, be straightforward to you. And that's another reason why I think he's, you know, he is long for this town is because, you know, you got to be honest like that. Like everyone listening, the fans, the media, we're not stupid. Like right. just be straight up with us when a guy is struggling or when something happens, like just, just be honest. Before we wrap up, uh, Kumar Rocker, what's interesting about the Mets draft, if, and as we are it's still going on as we speak, is they've taken a ton of pictures. Makes yeah. me wonder, one, they had another high-end arm coming into the organization. Maybe that allows them to move a high-end arm, a JT again. I know Matthew Allen's hurt, but. That's never stopped teams from acquiring in the past. Um, interesting to see a different Mets philosophy, the money, the flexibility. It's not just about going out and signing, you know, a $40 million a year player. I think it's about knowing what you can spend, being able to be flexible, being able to take a guy with a 10th pick, which look, he dropped at number 10. If it's just money, great. Maybe there's something else. Obviously nobody's as good as anybody 
projects them to be. We tend to overrate this stuff, but uh, it's interesting because today might actually help the Mets, not necessarily in terms of players right now, but it'd be interesting. This, this draft will make them feel confident in dealing some more of the upper echelon in the system. Cause that's been the, the well, we don't want to trade any top prospects. Well, guess what? You might not even get a Kyle Gibson who has a year left on his contract without giving up something. There's going to be pain. I know that Mets fans don't want to hear that after all the years where they had to dump players. Um, but I, would be curious, your thoughts, you know, an interesting Sunday night after a bad loss, big time yeah. player, very rarely do you see universal praise for the Mets in the national media. And now can this have impact on the trade deadline in just a couple of weeks? That's definitely an interesting way of looking at it, actually. Um, yeah, first off, I mean, Kumar Rocker was the basically the second biggest name uh, for a pitcher in college baseball right now, next to his teammate Jack Leiter at Vanderbilt. Um, you know, would have been a great was, story, Jack Leiter on the Mets, but not going to happen. Yeah, I know. I no one expected that to happen, but I mean, no one expected uh, Rocker to you know fall to the Mets. And from what I've heard, it's you know, it had to do with his contract demands, which he got a $6 million signing bonus from the Mets today. And also the fact that there was a, you know, a slight dip in his velocity. I believe he was down to like 91 miles per hour this year. Um, but this kid really is a bona fide stud and has, you know, top of the rotation type potential. And we could probably see him in maybe a year, year and a half up. He's not going to be in the minors for very long. He just had a, you know, a pretty long and decent career at, Vanderbilt so I think that this was a really really good pick and definitely worth the money and could really pay off for the Mets and it does like you said it does give them more flexibility now if they want to trade a JT Ginn who's coming off Tommy John surgery anyway uh, you know maybe they want to you know if the price is right they could package him in a trade from what it sounded like Scott was saying that they don't want to give up any of their top prospects this year but you, you know good, well, good and well, and so do I, that um, you know when teams have good farm systems, and the Mets farm system now has been rebuilt again, it looks you know it's pretty attractive now. They got some good young players. That's when the opposing teams, when you're making calls, the, or the you know, opposing teams are calling you, they're asking for some of your top guys. They're trying to get you to overpay, and it just kind of comes down to what you know where they value you know whatever target they have versus the prospect they have, and you know what's fair and what's not. It just kind of makes it tougher. Like even with the Yankees for years, when the Yankees were stacked in the farm system with the trades they made, they overvalued their prospects, which is also something the Mets need to be careful of. Um, And now they're kind of stuck in a situation where it's like, should we buy? Should we sell? They're not really set up well for the future. Um, But yeah, at the same time, like the Mets, like you can't overpay and then you can't, you know, you still got to kind of, uh, you know, walk a fine line there, but it definitely gives them more flexibility with a guy like Rocker who could be up in a year and a half. Maybe he could have either beat, I'd say, honestly, like at the rate Gin's going, especially with the Tommy John rehab and everything, Rocker probably will make his debut before him is what it right. sounds like. So those two are interesting and I guess something to keep an eye on and the fact that the Mets are replenishing their pitching in the farm system. But um, yep. yeah, it, it, future's it game. Futures game, Alvarez, Brett Beatty, and Binghamton. Uh, It's a long ways away from 2018 and three GMs, and nobody wants to give you anything for Familia. So, Pat, other than, uh, you know, Sports Illustrated, obviously, at Regazzo Report on Twitter, Pat does great work. Uh, You know, we have only the best of the best here on this show, and you follow him. He's at the ballpark. You know, he's doing his thing. Uh, What else you got going on? You got Frank the Tank. You know, Frank made a, a very big impression on this show. 
It was the hardest interview I've ever had. I told people, I don't know what I did. I usually could always get something out of somebody. And Frank was just like very melancholy. I, I got him on the wrong day. So what do you got coming up? You got the Frank the Tank Sports Illustrated. What else you got coming up? Yeah, of course. So uh, again, trying to, you know, maybe cut back a little bit in the next few days with the All-Star break, kind of trying to enjoy, you know, and get get rested up before we uh, dive into the second half because, you know, it's a day in and day out grind. But um, yeah, I'm probably just going to do some stuff this week. You know, maybe a little related to the home run derby, uh, looking ahead to the second half for the Mets and kind of their biggest needs. Um, got Frank the Tank pod. We're recording with Frank, presented by Feltman's Coney Island Hot Dogs. Um, we're uh, now you're making me hungry. I haven't had dinner yet. Now you're making me hungry. <laughs> oh, well, you got to try Feltman's. Feltman's are uh, best hot dogs in the business. But um, we have our, yeah, we're recording on Wednesday. So that episode will drop Thursday. And uh, I also do contribute to inside the pinstripes which is another sports yep. illustrated site for the yankees i contribute a few articles a week with them so um you know kind of just uh bouncing out between you know my everyday uh job of being on the mets beat so just lots of baseball uh hopefully a little rest and uh yeah and looking forward to uh going through and diving into the second half pat be well you spent a generous amount of time loved it let's do this again my friend Alrighty. Of course. Thanks so much, Mike. Right. It was a blast. And thanks for having me on. And that's Pat Ragazzo. You can check him out at Ragazzo Report, Sports Illustrated, uh, Mets Beat Reporter, Frank the Tank Pod. Listen, you got to laugh at Frank. I know you guys didn't like him. I still think he's funny. You know, he balances out the positive and the negative, right? You have a lot of positive around the Mets uh, Twitter sphere. Frank will always bring you back down. All right, let's take a quick break. Wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Doc Gooden's first two years in the big leagues were some of the best in the history of baseball. How did that impact him going forward? He discussed this with me on the Talking Mets podcast. You know, normally you have those type of years, maybe like year five, year six, uh, once you get like 28, 29 years old. Mine happened in 1920, my first two years. I remember a game in 86 where I pitched a shutout, but I only had three uh, strikeouts. The first question was, what happened? You only had three strikeouts. And you know, you'll say the political correct words. You say, "Oh, I'm not worried about that. I just want to win. It's for the team." But inside, now that hit a nerve where you feel like my next start, I got to pitch nine innings. I got to pitch a shutout. I got to get ten strikeouts. Um, and I, I lost some fun that I was having in the game because of that. Because of expectation, where it became like the media expectation, the fan expectation, then it became my expectations. What I felt that anything I did. Like, I couldn't match 85 no matter what I did. But in my mind, if I didn't get the 10 strikeouts or whatever, it wasn't the same. It wasn't just a win. And I wasn't having as much fun as I should have had. That's one of the things I regret looking back at my career now, where I would allow things, you know, whether it's the media, the fans, or myself at that point getting into my own head, allowing that media to lose the fun. Because it should be a privilege playing Major League Baseball. And you're still winning games. You're still pitching great. Obviously, it's not 85. But unfortunately, I had my career year, my second year, or you say my first year, and you're never going to match that again. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. I thought uh, Pat was a great guest. I thought we had a lot of good conversation. Um, you heard his take. You know, Pat does some really good work. You can check him out over at... Sports Illustrated's the uh, Regazzo Report, at Regazzo Report 
on Twitter, you know, the Sports Illustrated Mets coverage inside the Mets. So uh, a new voice that I highly recommend that you guys follow and a new uh, guy that we could get on the show and hopefully interact with as the season goes on. Um, as far as what I have to wrap up, I've kept you guys well over the hour here. Hopefully it gives you some things to chomp on throughout the All-Star break. Uh, one other thing I just wanted to leave you on is I, uh, I saw some chatter over the weekend about Anthony Recker on the broadcast, and I made a comment that I think some people took and not so great that, you know, in, in, in all due respect, uh, it might be time for the Mets to incorporate some more contemporary voices as the more that we go down the road with uh, Gary, Keith, and Ron, uh, the more that they're getting dated a little bit. You know, Keith and Ron haven't played. I mean, Keith retired in 1990. You're looking at well over 30 years. Ron, a few years later, it's been you know about 25 years. And not that they have bad baseball knowledge, but there's only so many stories you can tell in the booth. You know, we've heard quite a few of them. Uh, they have great chemistry. I love Keith's Phil Rizzuto shtick. I mean, even Keith got hurt this first half, and he was on the injured list uh, by falling off. I guess it was his uh, his hot tub trying to trim a rose bush or something. I don't know. But and I said, you know, the thing about Wrecker is. At least there's some contemporary embracing of the modern game. He played with some of the guys. You know, he had stories about DeGrom and catching DeGrom in Vegas and being with the 2015 team. And uh, there's a value to that, I think. And I think it's important for the Mets because even Todd Zeal. I mean, Todd Zeal hasn't played in, uh, you know, probably 15, you know, 20 years. Uh, you know, I think he retired somewhere 2005, 2006, somewhere around there. So, you know, I know people got crazy about it. I'm not advocating to break up Gary, Keith, and Ron. They're not going to announce forever. You know, Keith is going to want to eventually retire. You know, Ron's got his sights on a national broadcast. It's a good paycheck, but it's work. It's travel. And uh, I thought starting to incorporate some more contemporary voices like a wrecker who I think have a connection to the Mets. I think that's important and have some character, you know, is something the Mets should continue to try to do. And I, I, I was all for it. Uh, that doesn't mean you don't you know, have any more Gary, Keith, and Ron, but I thought it was interesting how people get crazy. And I've always said, been blessed that uh, growing up, some of the best broadcasters in the history of baseball and in the history of all sports with Marv Albert recently retiring and, I, uh, you know, and growing up listening to him on Knicks broadcasts. Um, I feel very lucky. I feel very lucky that the small piece that I do in this media world, I can say these are voices that, were big for me, especially someone who, who listened to a lot of sports on the radio up until I was about 16 years old, not having cable when I grew up. Uh, just I thought I had an interesting perspective. So I wanted to throw that out there. I think it's nice that the Mets are starting to incorporate maybe a more contemporary voice. I think they should do more of that. Obviously, you need to have the play-by-play -play chops. Not easy. He's more of a color commentator, a wrecker. And it's not putting you in the booth on a live broadcast, especially doing those intros, not easy. I give him a ton of credit. He needs a little bit of work, maybe a little bit robotic at times, but some interesting uh, takes and contemporary takes, and I think that's important as we get further and further uh, away from the 86 Mets and the 80s Mets. I think these other voices can provide some kind of um, balancing act to the folksy type of Phil Rizzuto, Ron, Gary, the Mets fan kind of shtick that they've had going on. Once in a while, a new voice is not bad. And that's all I said. So wanted to end on that note. Want to thank Pat Ragazzo for joining me uh, today. Of course, you can check him out at Ragazzo Report on Twitter. Check him out on Sports Illustrated and Inside the Mets. Of course, you can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You can send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. 
And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy your all-star break. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast in the second half. We'll start off the second half with uh, a new fresh slate. Till then, take care, everybody. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.